referring to a cell that can perform phagocytosis. So again, looking back at here, we have our phagocytes, which are neutrophils, monocytes, and macrophages. Also includes more So you can see here the phagocyte binds that particular pathogen. It has a receptor where it can bind to that pathogen. And then the phagocytosis, again, endocytosis is going to happen. You can see it has little pseudopadia, the false feet, that grow out and around that pathogen, form a vesicle around it. And that vesicle is then brought to a lysosome a phagolysosome, that what's called an oxidative burst that happens within that lysosome, where enzymes and oxidizing agents break down that pathogen. Some bacteria have a capsule that prevents them from directly binding to a phagocyte. But this is one of the areas where our antibodies come into play. And the antibodies can bind to that capsule and then make it more likely to be phagocytized by a particular cell. Another part of our innate immune system is our natural killer cells. As I mentioned, they are there to destroy our infected cells. So say a virus infects one of our self cells, and that self cell is now starting to replicate that virus's RNA. We want to stop that. So we're going to want to destroy our own cell because it's replicating the viral RNA. So what happens is the NK cell releases a couple different types of proteins, perforin and granzyme. Perforin perforates the plasma membrane of that particular cell. So it basically creates a pore within that plasma membrane that the granzyme can then travel through. And then the granzyme triggers what's called apoptosis. That is pre-programmed cell death. Apoptosis is just a built-in self-destruct button. So if we hit that button, that cell dies. And if that cell dies, it can no longer replicate that viral RNA. So Aptoptosis is just like a button, self-destruct thing. Exactly. <coughs> Another part of our innate immune system that we're probably more familiar with is inflammation. <coughs> and in inflammation, there is three major steps. There's the chemical release, and it's the chemicals that are going to be triggering inflammation specifically vasodilation, and increased vascular permeability. And once that happens, 
basically we're able to get a lot more white blood cells to that particular area to clean up what's going on. So let's elaborate. First step is chemical release. And this is some, not all of the many chemicals that can potentially be released in this process. So that we've heard before, probably have heard before, is histamine, coming from our mast cells and our basal, cell, uh, basal fills. Kenins can also be activated. These are plasma proteins. Fatty acid molecules called prostaglandins are going to be secreted by neutrophils, basophils, and mast cells. Now ultimately, the histamine, kenins, and prostaglandins are going to help kick off the next step by causing vasodilation. So it's going to cause the increase in the diameter of the adjacent blood vessels. And it's also going to increase capillary permeability. It makes our capillaries leakier. That's going to allow fluid and clotting factors and cells to more easily leave the capillaries and enter the surrounded damaged infected tissue. During inflammation, complements proteins are also activated. And there's a little section coming up on complement proteins, so I'll get to that. And cytokines is an umbrella term for basically old proteins that play a role in the immune system. Especially when it comes to communication, um, cell activation, so if you see cytokines, it's just a catch-all term basically for immune protein. So why is this vasodilation and vascular permeability important? Well, first of all, if we vasodilate blood vessels, we're going to be increasing the amount of blood flowing to that particular area as well as the blood pressure there. Now, if we have more blood going to that area, we're going to be bringing more white blood cells there. And this goes hand in hand with the vascular permeability. So you have more blood there, we have more white blood cells there. So what's going to happen is more of that fluid, more of the plasma within that, those blood vessels are going to leak out of the capillaries and then enter the interstitial space surrounding the cells outside of your blood vessels. So we're having a lot of fluid leave the blood vessels, enter the interstitial fluid and they're going to be bringing with them antibodies and clotting factors. Now because more fluid is entering the interstitial fluid, then the interstitial pressure increases. 
So when the interstitial pressure increases, that's going to force more fluid then into the lymphatic system. This fluid, that's gonna have damaged cells, pathogens, things that needs to be taken care of by our immune system is being forced into our lymphatic system, which is great because as I mentioned, the lymphatic system is where we house that acquired immune system. The big role of the lymphatic system is to house white blood cells. So it's great if we can start pushing a lot of those pathogens into the lymphatic system. Now this vasodilation and the increase in blood flow gives us a couple of the cardinal signs of inflammation, the redness and the heat. Blood, of course, is red. If you have more blood flow to a particular area, it's going to cause it to look more red. And additionally, uh, your blood is typically a degree Celsius warmer than the rest of your body. So that air is going to tend to be warmer as well. But the vascular permeability, you have a lot of fluid then entering the interstitial space, which leads to swelling. That can also cause pain and compression on nerves, and a lot of these chemicals that are being released can also trigger pain receptors as well. So that's kind of the four cardinal signs of inflammation, the redness, heat, swelling, and pain. So this ties into the third step of inflammation, phagocyte mobilization. So what's gonna happen during phagocyte mobilization is leukocytosis, remember from last week's lab, it's gonna be increasing the number of our white blood cells of leukocytes. Those are gonna be put to work because evidently we just drove a rusty nail into our skin. Now once we have increased these white blood cells, we need them to actually get to that particular damaged area. And this is where the next three steps in phagocyte mobilization come into play. So first of all, we get our white blood cells, leukocytosis, then we have margination. Now margination is how these white blood cells are going to essentially stick to the blood vessels in that particular inflamed area. Both those white blood cells and endothelial cells are going to be producing CAMs, cell adhesion molecules basically cellular Velcro. So these white blood cells are going to enter that area and they're going to stick to the cell adhesion molecules, to the Velcro, and then diapedesis happens. Anybody has seen a video of an octopus squeezed through a really, really tiny tube? That's essentially what diapedesis is. You take this white blood cell which is stuck to the endothelium because of the cell adhesion molecules, and it squeezes through the little opening between the endothelium to enter the interstitial space. 
interstitial space. Once there, base, it, uh, chemotaxis happens. And chemotaxis, I think of a chemical taxi, where these white blood cells are going to follow the concentration gradient of the inflammatory chemicals being released by that damaged area. Of course, the closer it gets to that damaged area, the higher the concentration of those chemicals is going to be because of diffusion. And of course, the, the white blood cells and the confidence system or whatnot are going to be there to clean up cellular debris, to destroy any pathogens, things like that. And you have this big handy flowchart that just helps to um, show you how all this information kind of relates to one another. I kind of like this flowchart. So you get tissue injury. And where you have that injured tissue, you're going to be releasing inflammatory chemicals and chemicals that are going to kick off leukocytosis. Inflammatory chemicals are going to cause the vasodilation and increase the capillary permeability and start to attract chemicals via chemotaxis or uh, lymphocytes via chemotaxis. Because the arterioles dilate, you have that vasodilation, you get more blood to the area that causes heat and redness. With the leaky capillaries, uh, fluid coming from the arterioles is able to enter the interstitial space, causing swelling and pain, bringing with it clotting proteins, things like that to help repair the damaged tissue. And via leukocytosis, that's going to be bringing more white blood cells into that particular area via the margination, diathesis, chemotaxis, which is going to help to clean up that damaged area. So, big flowchart illustrates all the information you need to know in. Any thoughts, questions, comments, concerns on inflammation? Peace, peace. You got a nice flow chart. No, I just included this chart in here because this includes basically the majority of the, the chemicals and things like that that are going to be talked about in this chapter. So a lot of these we will at least brush on, but I really like that they include this table in your textbook because all these different things being released can be a little hard to keep track of. So it gives you a good resource to refer to. And here you can see all oh, cytokines, just proteins affecting growth or activity of another cell, particularly with the immune system. And you can see a few of these have cytokines right in their definitions. So just a useful resource that I want to highlight. A couple more things here on innate immunity. So I mentioned antimicrobial proteins earlier. So you can um, 
consider these potentially um, cytokines as well. Uh, some of the major ones are interferons and in the complement system. Now, when it comes to interferons, again, proteins, these are proteins that are going to help combat viral infection. There's three different flavors of these proteins, alpha, beta, and gamma. When a particular cell is infected with a virus, that cell is going to start to produce these interferon proteins, and it's also unfortunately going to start to replicate the new viruses, because it got hijacked. Now the interferon alpha and beta are going to then travel towards adjacent cells, bind to interferon receptors, and then those adjacent cells are going to start to produce antiviral proteins <coughs> that mess with viral reproduction. The interferon gamma attracts macrophages to that particular area. Those macrophages are going to be there to help to destroy the cell that secreted the interferon in the first place because it is infected with the virus and it's producing new viruses. When it comes to the complement proteins, there is a bunch of them. There's at least 25 that have been identified. And the complement system is, they have a lot of similar functions to antibodies, but antibodies are more specific. They're part of the acquired immune system. Complement system is part of the innate immune system. First of all, and with all these different proteins, I can have some of these functions, um, one of these functions, whatnot. I'm just kind of, I'm just grouping them up as basically one entity. But first of all, opsonization. You'll hear this again. Opsonization is where a complement protein has bound to a particular pathogen, and then that makes it much more susceptible to being phagocytized. It's basically saying, hey, I've caught you know, a bad guy, come over here and it makes it, it highlights those pathogens. Complement proteins can help to trigger inflammation. They can do a similar thing like the natural killer cells did where they can perforate, they can poke a hole in a cell. This is called cytolysis. In lysis, the breakdown of cyto, referring to a cell. So the complement proteins can uh, produce a membrane attack complex, which is basically they form a pole or a pore within that particular pathogen. And the pores 
that pathogen isn't able to regulate its internal environment, and it's ultimately going to cause that cell's destruction. My personal favorite is the elimination of immune complexes. So already we had an antigen, we'll talk about antigens here in a little bit, but an antibody has bound to an antigen. Antigen is bad, we want to get rid of it. So the complement protein binds that antibody antigen complex to a red blood cell. And that's awesome because once that red blood cell hits the spleen or the liver, those organs are going to break down the whole shebang, including that antigen. And the last part of innate immunity I'm going to talk about is fever, something I'm sure that we are all familiar with. Now, fever is caused by molecules called pyrogens. These can come from particular infectious agents as well as some of our white blood cells. But ultimately, these pyrogens will work their way up to our hypothalamus. And the hypothalamus is the keeper of our body's thermostat in a rather literal sense. Basically, your hypothalamus that dictates your body's going to be at that nice, balmy 98.6 degrees. It's like the dad that won't let anybody touch the thermostat in the winter. It has to be that temperature. I don't care how cold you are, it's going to be that temperature. The pyrogens are going to cause hypothalamus to increase the thermostat. So if your house is set at you know, 98.6 degrees and you increase the thermostat to 101 degrees, it doesn't hit 101 instantly. Your furnace has to kick on. That's going to slowly work its way up to 101 degrees. And raising the temperature is the first phase of fever called onset. So this is where our body's furnace kicks on. We want to increase the temperature. And in order to do that, we do a couple different things. First of which is dermal, so skin, vasoconstriction. So we're pulling blood away from the skin by reducing the diameter of those blood vessels. If you look at somebody, they're like really, really pale. Like, ooh, you don't look so great. You know, they're kind of sick just because of how pale they have lost a lot of color. Our skin is the coolest part of our body. If blood flows to our skin, the skin cools off that blood. We don't want cool blood, we want warmer blood. We just want to raise our temperature. So we pull a lot of blood away from our skin. Additionally, you know, when you're cold, you shiver friction between the actin and the myosin in our skeletal muscles raises the, creates heat, warms up the surrounding blood, which then circulates more specifically. This is why you could have a temperature of 100 degrees, 
and you know your mom puts her hand on your forehead and goes, wow, you're burning up, but you're under eight blankets just shivering saying you're so cold because you haven't hit the set point that your hypothalamus has raised your temperature to yet. But ultimately you hit that set point and then your body's going to maintain that fever. So you say you get to 100 degrees and then that's where you get the benefits and some of the benefits of fever are still being argued about um, and research looked into, but supposedly by increasing our body temperature a little bit, it inhibits uh, basically replication of bacteria and viruses while increasing our metabolism and our repair processes. So supposedly it gives us a little bit of a boost while inhibiting what's causing us to be sick in the first place. So fever boosts our healing. So mild fevers should not be treated. That's why that's in bold and caps. Mild fevers. If your normal body temperature is at 98.6 and you're kind of sick and your temperature is at like 99.5, you don't need to kill that fever with a bunch of heavy duty drugs. This is how your body helps heal itself. Your body's really good at being able to heal itself. However, high fevers can be dangerous. And I just want to clarify here, I'm not saying if you hit 102 degrees, you're gonna get a seizure. I'm saying if you're at 102 degrees for a very extended period of time, you can start to increase the chance of having a fever-induced seizure. Same thing if you increase the temperature to say now 106 degrees plus and have 106 degree temperature for a very long period of time because of the protein denaturation that that can cause, you can potentially get brain damage and 109 degrees plus for a very extended period of time can potentially cause death. If you've ever seen any medical dramas or whatever, somebody comes with a super high fever and then Dr. McDreamy heroically places them into an ice bath and saves the day. Yeah. So why do kids get fever all seizures then? Get what seizures? Fever all seizures? I'm not sure. Mine don't. Most of them have a fever to shoot immediately and they can feel like a seizure. And it's usually like my kids five, so my kids have it. And they grow out of it after age five. Wow. I do not know. Ultimately, um, your if you heard your fever breaks and you're you know you start to get better, then your hypothalamus reduces that temperature set point back to uh, its original 98.6 degrees. That's defecescence, where you return your normal body temperature. Cool. So that is innate immunity non-specific blanket defenses towards a host of different pathogens. Thoughts, questions, comments, concerns. That's a great question. A lot of it's going to depend on a particular 
that. I'm just saying that if you have a 102 degree seizure, and it has for a 102 degree seizure, 102 degree temperature, and you've been that way for like all day, you should probably go see a doctor. Yeah. 102 plus, you shouldn't, shouldn't wait that out. If you're like, you know, 99, 100, that's fine. Any more than that, then yeah, you should probably treat that. All right, group discussion questions. Describe the two divisions of the immune system. Explain inflammation and then explain the complement system. recognizing antigens. So what is an antigen? Now antigen is basically part of a molecule that our acquired immune system can identify. It can be part of a protein, most likely it's part of a protein, but uh, part of a uh, polysaccharide basically part of the molecule that our acquired immune system can recognize. Now there are both foreign as well as self-antigens. Now self-antigens are things that our cells have that are basically like ID badges that they have in their plasma membrane that says, hey, 
I am your own cell, I am a healthy cell, so you don't need to destroy me. Foreign antigens are going to be parts of pathogens that are then going to trigger an immune response. And the ability of that antigen to produce an immune response is dependent on the antigenic determinant. So ultimately, things like the degree of foreignness. So if there is a foreign antigen that has entered your body and it's totally unlike anything in your body whatsoever, you're gonna be more drawn to it. If it's just really, really, really big, it's gonna be easier to come in contact with, more likely to trigger an immune response. Same thing, it's really complex. So potentially has a bunch of different areas that can act as an antigen. It's going to increase the likelihood that it triggers an immune response. And also if there's more of them, if there's a lot of foreign antigens, you're gonna be more likely That's a great question. Um, I don't exactly know how to directly answer your question with the allergy shots. I'm going to, there's a couple things here I'm going to mention that are close to that. So part of that ties into things called pectins. So for example, a very common allergy is pet dander, hence the adorable picture of a little kitten arguments. Notice a little squirrel, favorite toy. Okay, but the pet dander cats are something that in and of themselves does not trigger an immune response. The pet dander in and of itself does not trigger an allergic reaction. However, these halfkins that are normally incredibly, incredibly small, things like pet dander, things like poison ivy, um, pollen, things like that, can then bind to other proteins within the body once they have that secondary binding then they can trigger an immune response. So imagine that the, um, the uh, allergy shots are gonna be something to bind to those pathogens in a way that doesn't trigger an allergic reaction, but that's just kind of a, an educated guess. So, as I said, adaptive immunity, everything to do with lymphocytes. Now, NK cells, the natural killer cells, are technically a lymphocyte. However, they are within the innate immunity realm. So don't cross streams here. NK cells, innate immunity, even though they're lymphocytes. We're gonna be focusing on the other types of lymphocytes, B lymphocytes and T lymphocytes. And they're elaborated a little bit more in this helpful little flow chart. So, in adaptive immunity, you have the T lymphocytes, you have the B lymphocytes. B lymphocytes are part of humoral immunity. T lymphocytes is a part of cell-mediated immunity. Now, humor is just referring to a fluid. So the B lymphocytes are going to be active essentially within our bloodstream. Ultimately, B lymphocytes, we 
result in the production of antibodies. The cell-mediated immunity is all about killing cells. So humoral immunity releases um, antibodies into your bloodstream, humoral immunity. T lymphocytes kill cells in cell-mediated immunity. Now to understand how our lymphocytes work and why they are specific as opposed to a blanket defense has to deal with what's called their receptor complexes. So each T lymphocyte and each B lymphocyte has the special specific proteins in their plasma membrane. Now, basically, each T and B lymphocyte is its own special unique little butterfly that has its own special and unique receptor complex. But all the receptor complexes on that one cell are going to be the same. So I'll just say, hey, we got three different T lymphocytes. And this one's T cell receptor is triangle, this one's square, and this one's a circle. This one is only going to have the circle complexes, this one is only going to have the square complexes, this one's only going to have the triangle complexes. Each of these complexes is going to be able to bind to a specific antigen. So that's why in adaptive immunity, it's that specific immunity. It's because each one of these cells only binds to and therefore fights against one particular antigen. B lymphocytes can make contact to a free antigen. So if there's any kind of antigens floating around, the B lymphocytes can make direct contact to it. The T lymphocytes have to have it presented. I'm going to talk about antigen presentation here in a minute. Now, in addition to each having their own unique receptor complex, which is going to allow it to bind to an antigen. T lymphocytes have an additional molecule to help to facilitate this binding called ACD molecule. Now there are two different types of T lymphocytes. There is a helper T lymphocyte, and there is a cytotoxic T lymphocyte. They have different CD molecules. So the CD molecules differentiate those T lymphocytes, and it gives them different functions. This picture will help illustrate. So here we have the three types of lymphocytes that we will be dealing with in our acquired immune system. We have our helper T lymphocyte, 
we have our cytotoxic team of the site, and then we have our view of the site. And you can see on the cell's surfaces that we have the T cell receptors and then the B cell receptors. It's those cell receptors that are going to directly be binding to the antigens question. And you can see the CD4 protein on the helper T lymphocyte and the CD8 protein on the cytotoxic T lymphocyte will help to facilitate the connection in the T lymphocyte realm. Clear as mud? Awesome. It'll get better. Okay, so functions of these is going to help with this. So first of all, helper T lymphocytes are there obviously to help out the immune system. What I mean by that is that it'll They'll come more clear about 20 slides or so, but the helper T lymphocyte is going to help to activate some of our other white blood cells. So that will get elaborated on later. It will become clear what that is, why that is important. Let's just put a bookmark in it for now. Helper T lymphocytes are there to just literally help the other white blood cells. Cytotoxic T lymphocytes, as their name suggests, cytocellotoxic to kill. Uh, the cytotoxic T lymphocytes are going to be there to kill cells. So, with the T lymphocytes, they need their antigens to be presented to them. And when it comes to this antigen presentation, there are a couple different sources from which these antigens are going to be presented. First of all, all nucleated cells are able to present antigens to cytotoxic T lymphocytes. All nucleated cells. Which cells did we talk about last week did not have a nucleus? Red blood cells, exactly. Red blood cells lost their nucleus, therefore they don't have to bother with this. Which is great because you don't want your immune system to kill your red blood cells. That would be awful. Now the antigen presenting cells, APCs, those phagocytic cells, the dendritic macrophages and eulipocytes, the antigen presenting cells are going to be specifically presenting antigens to helper T lymphocytes. Let's think about this a little, little bit. So I mentioned helper T lymphocytes are there to help other white blood cells. Cytotoxic T lymphocytes are there to kill cells. If a nucleated cell presents a foreign antigen to a cytotoxic T lymphocyte, the cytotoxic T lymphocyte knows that cell has been infected and it kills that cell. 
This is why the antigen-presenting cells, which are our white blood cells, do not present to cytotoxic T lymphocytes because you don't want your white blood cells to get destroyed because they're there to help your immune system. So in order to strap an antigen to a plasma membrane for presentation, you have a special protein that's going to be embedded in the plasma membrane that attaches a antigen to it. That special protein is called a major histocompatibility complex, MHC. These make us all special, unique little butterflies. Because there are millions of combinations of alleles, so like millions of different genes that could potentially be used to go into creating MHC protein. This is why if you're going for an organ donation, the first place you look is a sibling. Because odds are their MHC cells are going to be as close as possible to your own. And then you will get like cousins and then you branch out from there. Two flavors of these proteins, MHC class 1, MHC class 2. This ties into the two different types of antigen presentation. All nucleated cells have the MHC class one protein. And that MHC class one is typically going to be displaying self antigens. This is holding up your ID card saying, hey, I'm part of your body, I'm your own cell, so you don't need to kill me. If that particular cell gets infected, it is going to start to display foreign antigens. Then it's holding up the wrong ID card, and then your cytotoxic T lymphocytes then know to destroy that infected cell. The MHC class two molecules are gonna be found in the antigen-presenting cells, those phagocytic cells. Now those phagocytic cells are going to be getting those foreign antigens via phagocytosis. So they found a pathogen, they brought it into the lysosome, they killed it dead, and then they displayed the bits of it on their surface to say, hey, look at this thing I killed. This thing is around here. So it displays that to the helper T lymphocytes that isn't going to help boost your immune system to that specific type of antigen. So this is how our nucleated cells put a strap A antigen to their plasma membrane. That's called an endogenous pathway. So the rough endoplasmic reticulum, you're going to be producing that MHC class one protein. You're going to strap a self antigen, so you say a portion of a protein that your body recognizes as yourself goes into a vesicle, which makes its way through the Golgi apparatus, goes to another vesicle, and then it gets embedded from there into the plasma membrane. So you're displaying self-antigen that says, hey, I'm part of your cells, I'm healthy, no one can get rid of me. This here is a typo, this also says endogenous pathway, but this is the exogenous pathway. 
this has to do with the antigen presenting cells. With the antigen presenting cells, it's phagocytosis, how they then get a foreign antigen. So you can see how they bring in, in this case, a bacteria through phagocytosis. That bacteria gets brought to a lysosome. You get that oxidative first. That blows up that bacteria. The MHC molecule comes from the same place, from the plasma reticulum, works its way through Golgi, then it goes to the lysosome to pick up fragments of that bacteria, and then takes it to the plasma membrane to then display that foreign antigen for the helper T lymphocyte. Ultimately, this is the final product, this is the final goal, this ties everything together. So here you have a nucleated cell. So this has an MHC class 1, it doesn't say which one it is, this is 1 or 2. But ultimately, it is displaying, we'll just say, a foreign antigen. That foreign antigen is then binding to the T cell receptor on a T lymphocyte. And then you'll notice the CD molecule is then binding to the MHC molecule. And when this happens, because the T cell receptor is a special unique little, little butterfly that can only bind to one particular antigen, so when it finds an antigen it can bind to and it binds there, then that activates that particular lymphocyte to do its thing. Talk more about that here in a bit. Cool. So, how do we get these T lymphocytes? So, T lymphocytes development. B lymphocytes are just made, they're good B lymphocytes that don't have to deal with this. T lymphocytes have to go through a boot camp. And there's two major things that they have to pass in boot camp. There's positive selection and there's negative selection. If they fail either of these two tests, it's apoptosis for them. So first of all, positive selection. T lymphocytes, they're white blood cells, so they're born in the bone marrow. But they're called T lymphocytes because from the bone marrow, they're then going to head to the thymus gland, T lymphocyte thymus gland, so the T comes from, goes to the thymus gland, and then the thymus gland produces some NHC molecules because it needs to be able to bind to those MHC class molecules to actually activate that lymphocyte. So, if that budding wannabe T lymphocyte binds to that MHC molecule, good job, you survive. You pass go, you collect $200. If you do not bind to the thymic MHC, apoptosis. You are the weakest link, goodbye. In negative selection, you must 
not bind to self-antigens. Remember, self-antigens are your own ID cards saying I'm your healthy, friendly cells. This is where some autoimmune diseases come into play. You have your own immune system binding to your own antigens. So it triggers an immune response on your own healthy self cells. So if that budding, developing, wannabe T lymphocyte binds to a self antigen, death by apoptosis. If it does not bind to a self antigen, collects $200, has to go, and then it's ready to enter the real world. Only about 2% of T lymphocytes actually pass both positive and negative selection. At this point, because they're still developing, they have both CD4 and CD8. It's once they pass both tests, then they selectively lose one of those CD molecules and are therefore differentiated into helper or cytotoxic T lymphocytes. So this T lymphocyte is essentially the boot camp to produce fully functioning T lymphocytes. After that, they're going to leave the thymus gland and enter the lymphatic system. When they're in that process of first working their way to the lymphatic system, they're called naive T lymphocytes just because they're the initial soldiers that got done with boot camp but haven't seen any action changes. Here I have some pictures to help illustrate positive and negative selection. Some positive selection up here, you can see if it fails to bind to your own MHC molecule, it's destroyed. If it binds to the MHC molecule, you're good to go. In negative selection, if it binds to the self-antigen, it's destroyed. If it does not bind to the self-antigen, it's good to go. Thoughts, questions, comments, concerns. steps called the first signal and second signal. First signal is where your lymphocyte binds to the NHC molecule. Binds the NHC molecule, binds to its antigen, if it's compatible with that antigen. So there's a fit, it connects. Then second signal when it comes to the helper T lymphocyte, the second signal is then to release a cytokine, so an immune protein, called interleukin-2. And what interleukin-2 is going to do is cause proliferation 
and differentiation. Proliferation, big term for saying it's making more of them. Proliferation means that it's going to be reproducing. We're going to be having more of that particular telem site. This is incredibly important because it's more of this specific T lymphocyte with that specific T cell receptor that fights against this specific antigen. Why? This is the acquire the specific portion of the immune system. It's going after this one particular antigen. Now this differentiation is going to be creating essentially two different armies. It creates the active version, and it creates a memory version. The active version is the version of that particular T lymphocyte that is going to fight right now. It's being deployed immediately. The memory telocyte is mothballed. It stays at home. It's not going to be deployed right away. This mothballed army is actually just going to lay in wait. They say this is the flu. And this is the flu from 2015. You got really sick, got the flu real bad, and you finally recovered from it, and you've created that active army that immediately fought that flu, then you know you got better, so that activated army just disappeared. But you created the memory army as well, and say now in 2019, you get exposed to the exact same flu. But you can immediately call up this memory army with the exact same uh, T cell receptor that can immediately go and destroy that flu so now you don't get sick because that flu can't take hold because you already have this massive stash army that's ready to take down that specific antigen. More on that later. So that's a helper T lymphocyte. Cytotoxic T lymphocyte. The first signal, second signal is basically the same thing. First signal, your CD8 molecule and your TCR is going to be binding to that antigen MHC complex. Finally finds a thing that it can bind to, it binds. Second signal is kicked off as well from interleukin 2 coming from neighboring helper T lymphocytes. And this is really the role of the helper T lymphocytes to release those cytokines. Because now the cytotoxic T lymphocyte is going to proliferate and differentiate. So you have the increased number, and then you have the activated version and the memory version. Activated version, which is going to go kick some ass right now, and the memory version, which is going to go kick ass in the future. Either way, then the cytotoxic T lymphocytes do what they do and they kill that
sites, which we've been neglecting. But the B lymphocytes, their first signal, second signal, is a little bit different. First signal is where they're going to be binding to a free antigen. They don't need to do any of this presentation stuff. They can just go and they can just bind to an antigen. They're going to then take that antigen and they're going to present it themselves to a helper T lymphocyte. That helper T lymphocyte then releases interleukin 4, which is similar to interleukin 2. It's going to also cause proliferation differentiation. Now, instead of a, a memory, an active version, you still get the memory version, but the activated version is now called a plasma cell. This is an important distinction. The activated B lymphocyte becomes a plasma cell. Plasma cells secrete antibodies. B lymphocytes do not produce antibodies. B lymphocytes are antigen presenting cells. Exposed to interleukin 4, they can then develop into plasma cells. And it's plasma cells that produce antibodies. <clears throat> so here's this nice slide again just to summarize the effects of RT lymphocytes. You can see the helper ones are there to help out. They secrete cytokines like interleukin 2, interleukin that help with proliferation and differentiation. Cytotoxic T lymphocytes are cytotoxic. They're there to kill infected cells in basically the exact same manner that an NK cell does. This is why you don't have the antigen presenting cells, the white blood cells, present to cytotoxic T lymphocytes because they just don't. And normally you don't want that. Thoughts, questions, comments, concerns. So some group discussion questions to organize your thoughts. We already kind of mentioned this one, just kind of scratch that one up. What happens to T lymphocytes within the thymus gland? So that is that boot. 